0: Hello again, this is Jay Lockenauer, host of New Books in Military History. And I've tried to do something different today, so I'm going to say a few words for our listeners to just explain what's about to happen. Um, I decided... uh on something of a whim, to uh, interview a novelist who's written a novel that's uh, a compelling romance, but one that's powerfully shaped by war. So, with me today is Nick Dybeck, who's an assistant professor of English at Oregon State University and the author, most recently, of *The Verdun Affair*, a novel published in 2018 by Scribners. Thanks for joining me, Nick. Thank
1: you, Jay. It's my pleasure.
0: So, I, I want you to introduce the story. You're certainly uh, more practiced at that, and tell the tell the listeners a little bit about the what the story is about.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a love story, as you mentioned, that takes place in the aftermath of World War I, um, in particular in the aftermath of the Battle of Verdun. And the narrator of this book is an American named Tom who has, uh, through a kind of circuitous way, wound up uh, in France during World War One and has stayed on to uh, serve as an assistant to the Diocese of Verdun in their effort to... Um, collect all the thousands of bones that have been left on the battlefield uh and and kind of put them in order and into this uh ossuary a uh, memorial that they're in the process of building and um at the same time though there are uh they has become this kind of location of pilgrimage for the many people who have either lost a son or a husband um the you know, who died there or, or many others who more literally, uh, have, have lost a son or husband, uh, someone who's come, who's, who's, uh, was declared missing during the war. And so in the early p- passages of the book, a, an American woman named Sarah Hagan shows up at Verdun, uh, looking for her missing husband. Um, and, uh, the story kind of follows their relationship as it, as it progresses from, from that initial meeting.
0: So One of the things that Im- impressed me was the, your ability to capture um, th- you know, the atmosphere of post-war Europe, both in France and Italy, where, there, uh, where the action takes place for the most part. Um, there are, I guess, flashbacks, moments where characters recall the war itself. Uh, how, did you, how did you assemble all this information? What kind of research
1: did you do to, um, to put all this together so convincingly? Well, a, a lot. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I wrote this over the course of um, almost seven years. And when I began the book, I had an interest, certainly, in the period and in World War I in general for a, a number of reasons. But I, I really didn't uh, have any deep knowledge or expertise. So I really had to find out a lot. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, so I guess it might be useful to say first, you know, how, how I got started on this at all. And, um, one day in, I don't know, probably 2010 or something like that, I was driving home from work and there happened to be a story on the BBC about a memorial service that was being held between French and German leaders at, at Verdun. And, um, it it just mentioned in kind of a throwaway line that it was taking place at this, uh, at this site called the Dumas Ossuary, which, uh, was, was the, location for the intern, internment of all these thousands of bones. And it just mentioned in one line that they had been collected over many years by just a few people. And that just really struck me. Um, it's a totally macabre image, of course, but just the idea of, of the question of what would that do to you if that was your job? Um, and, and you're in this kind of time period where everyone is trying to come to grips with the sort of unfathomable and what would have been just pretty recently an Im- impossible kind of catastrophe that had just be fall- that fallen the world. And, and, you know, so everyone's dealing with that, but then you, you know, have these particular people who are, who are literally walking around trying to pick up these pieces that, that literally don't fit together anymore. Um, and that image, uh, was uh, you know, kind of haunted me, and was uh, really led to everything else. You know, uh, and when I started, I, I had this image I was compelled by, but but I didn't know much about what surrounded it. Uh, so I had to, I had a lot to find out. Um, I think I did that mostly in two ways: uh, reading a lot of books was the primary one, and uh, travel uh, to the places that I actually wrote about was. Well,
0: the- I was, I was curious. It was. Um, satisfying for me because I've been to many of the places that you, uh, that you, your characters visit, including Verdun only once, but enough. um, I remember enough about it to, to really be convinced by your um, depiction of the, of the city in the aftermath of a terrible, devastating war and how people uh, pick up their lives, rebuild their businesses. Um, I was, you know, little interesting touches that you add, like the, the presence of so many fortune tellers and, uh, whatever you call someone who leads a seance I guess a
1: medium um, I think right yeah.
0: a medium there you go <laughs> searching for the word to, to serve these pilgrims who come and and look for something any kind of connection to their to their lost one
1: yeah I mean you know so it's funny to to go there now uh, because you know it's so much of it um, it's still visible right I mean so, so much of uh, of World War one is still visible there um, in very intentional ways. Right. Um, I mean, you probably remember from, from you went that, that a lot of the ground around the city, uh, is, you know, still it's overgrown with grass now, but it still has that moonscape. Um, you know, it looks like the ground looks like waves, right. Of, 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 you can still see the old, the old shelling. Uh, you can still see all the forts. Um, it's, I'm not sure if you, if you went to this part or not, but it's very moving to see these, um, what they call destroyed villages, right? Uh, places mm-hmm. like flurry, uh, which were wiped off the map during the face of the battle. And it was, um, literally too dangerous to support life there anymore. Right. Cause I mean, the ground was just so full of ordnance and, and scrap and, um, and so, you know, they never rebuilt, rebuilt these little towns, but, but they, you can go now and see, and, you know, kind of roped off, like, you know, here's where, here's where the town hall was. Here's where the church was. Here was the little main street. Um, so, I, it re, one thing that really struck me in going there was how odd it would be to grow up there now, you know, because um, there's there's not much going on in Verdun. Other, and, and I think this is kind of one of the interesting things about it, just, you know, just even before the war, there, there has never been that much going on there. You know, it's always been this kind of sleepy, provincial, uh, rather unimportant city, you know, economically or culturally, um, but it just happens to be this site of one of the most infamous Um, uh, battles and events in general that, that have ever occurred in France. Um, I just, it just kept, you know, you know, it's like if you're uh, at junior high at Verdun junior high and, you know, it's like your every class trip is going to a cemetery or a war memorial or, or whatever, you know, that, I mean, that that's, there's a novel in that uh, in in itself right right there, I think.
0: And if, and the impact not only on the landscape but on the on the people. I mean, you cite a couple of, of excellent books on World War One in kind of acknowledgments at the end. You don't have footnotes or anything like that, but um, you you mentioned Paul Fussell's Great War and Modern Memory. There's um, Eric Leeds No Man's Land and several other other very important books about the war. Um, so the, I'm sure that helped you describe the kind of psychological trauma that that's involved um, for both for the soldiers and the civilians.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um the and I, and I as you pointed out like I mean, there there's a fairly long list of, of acknowledgments um of, of books I read which uh were uh invaluable in trying to figure out some experience that you know I mean what compelled me about writing this experience and about writing people that had lived this is that it was so alien from anything I know, right? Um, So on one hand, that is what gets me interested in the material. On the other hand, as a novelist, that's what exactly the same thing that makes it really difficult to write about. So um, fortunately, uh, there is, uh, you know, I, I could have read wonderful books on this topic, probably you know, almost literally for the rest of my life without running out of them, right? Um, you mentioned two of them, which were uh, extremely um, useful. Uh, but even more than that, I think that um, reading uh, primary sources, uh, memoirs of people that had, had been there in other places in World War I uh, um, th- really helped me kind of try to get some kind of grip on what it would have been actually like to, to be there and experience it
0: so as an historian it was it was a, a bit of a game for me to try to read behind what you were writing and and see if i could figure out where this information was coming from and and you do such a great job i think you know from from a i, I think i said this in an email you don't need an historian's seal of approval but i'm i'm happy to to sort of give it here because you you tell the story in a way that that highlights um, characteristics of the post-war period that I would that I would make sure my students understood or you know that I would include in a book so things like the way um, people cling to certain rituals of death this is something that Jay winter has written about in a in a really uh, interesting way and I could I could see that in the way um, people are relating to the church or to the bones or to the mediums. So I wondered, you know, again it's not an indictment if you didn't, but did you read Jay Winter? Uh
1: other? yeah, let's see. Uh, sights of Sights of Mourning, Sights, sights of, of Meaning. Memory. Is that one of his? Morning, yeah. Sights of memory, sights of mourning. Sights That's of the first, uh point. yes, I read uh I read part of his book. Um uh and I'm trying to think what yeah, you know, now I, at at one point I probably could say uh, you know, to your question, like, you know, here here's Here's a text that you know this this little snippet or detail came from. Here's another one. Um, I think in that one, one one I might be remembering this wrong, but um, i I want to say from that book I learned one thing which you know I always assumed that you you kind of you know the thing you see in, in the movies right is when you when you get uh, an announcement of um, that someone's been missing or, or killed an action that a telegram comes. But, uh, apparently in, at least in some French towns, it actually, uh, fell to the mayor to deliver that news personally, uh, which I believe is something that I encountered in his book. Um, and so that was one detail that, uh, you know, just kind of in one sentence reading, you know, like actually created a, an early scene, um, where you, where you have this, this woman that's lost her husband come and, and, uh then as a novelist you kind of imagine okay well you you know you, there's this you know mayor who's kind of walking around like almost like an undertaker every day and you're just hoping that he does not turn and come up your street and give you the news and of course one day he does right um so uh I, i'm pretty sure that came from his book and and i and i owe him a great debt for that
0: and sort of the scene and Saving Private Ryan, if I'm remembering, at the beginning, where the car, the kind of official looking car, turns up the driveway and the, the mother seems to understand mm-hmm. what's, what's about mm-hmm. to happen. Something similar. Yeah, to yeah that. exactly. And th- the other thing that comes out pretty clearly, too, is the, the, the presence of maimed bodies of damaged men, mostly um, people damaged by the war. Just to, to imagine what it would be like on a daily basis, you would, you'd be encountering people like this all the time that have suffered wounds or um, psychological uh, trauma. You think about George, the expressionist paintings of George Gross and people like that that captured
1: that. I think your novel does a, a great job of capturing that too. Yeah, yeah, and, and who's the who's the German uh, Hans Dix? Is that yeah, Otto, Otto Dix, Dix. Dix is, is another Otto one. Dix,
0: um, yeah, I always think of George Gross, G R O S Z, who's a famous who depicted these really kind of uh, seedy street scenes with with uh, wounded soldiers and prostitutes and things like that.
1: Yeah. Yes. Uh, and you know, in fact there was a, some years ago, but during the time I was working on this, there was a um, exhibit at the Guggenheim in New York that, um, uh, tried to kind of, you know, you know, just map some, some of, um, uh, some, how some of that the exact thinking you're describe, describing um, and lived experience kind of made its way into, into post-World War I art. And uh, so uh, certainly bo- both of those two uh, painters were, were people I thought a lot about.
0: Let's let's tell the listeners a little bit more about the story again without giving too much away. But you've you've mentioned that uh, Sarah Hagen comes looking for her missing husband, kind of refusing to believe that he's really dead and convinced that she'll find him somewhere. Um, she meets the main character Tom, and they have a, a, a a brief for, for forbidden romance, but a bit, like I said, a very compelling one. I don't read a, a lot of novels uh, of this sort, and it was uh, it was very both believable and interesting. I wanted to know what, what was going to happen uh, between the two of them. And um, so a big chunk of the book then revolves around a, a, another American or presumed American who has amnesia in Italy, and the characters find themselves in Bologna trying to discover if this – amnesiac is in fact is her missing husband so you get this uh, you know another setting where really terrible things are happening there too because of the uh the um growth of the fascist movement and the eventual takeover mm-hmm. of the fascists in in italy during this time period so a whole nother kind of w- uh wing of history that you
1: explore yeah yeah um but yeah there's that there, that's a there's a lot I could, uh, unpack in that question. So, uh, so let me first say, uh, just on the question of, of the, the sort of amnesiac and, you know, where that comes from, uh, that's, uh, kind of like I was just saying about this, you know, one detail in, in the Jay Winter book, uh, kind of on a larger level, uh, one book that I encountered, uh, is, um, a French tra- uh, a translation of a book that's originally written in French, uh, called the last oh, shoot. I'm not uh, the, la- the last, the un- last, the last living soldier, the last unknown soldier, so, some, something like that. Um, and that's the story of, uh, a French soldier named Anthelme Magin, who was repatriated. After the war, he'd been in a POW camp in Germany, and he showed up at the train station in Paris um, either without knowing who he was or, or at least was unwilling to tell anybody. And so they had no, no idea what to do with this guy, and they put him in an asylum. And the doctor there, in an effort to try to identify him, published his picture in the paper. And, and I think this story really, uh, for me, crystallized exactly what was going on at the time, um, in regards to this, you know, belief in mediums and um, spiritualism and and, and all the stuff you were kind of just talking about, because uh, when the picture of this guy was published in the paper, it got thousands of responses from people saying, "Oh, that's my son. That's my husband," and many of these were, uh, there's no possible way it could have been him, you know, their son or husband, and they freely admitted this was six inches taller than this guy or had different colored eyes or different colored hair. You know, there's just physically no way it could have been him, but yet they said, but I know it's still him. Um, and it was, you know, just a truly heartbreaking story, which, as I said, kind of crystallized, um, kind of what was happening mentally with so many people at the time. Right. And, and I, and I think there, you know, that kind of, uh, Wish fulfillment, but, you know, this total belief in the irrational that you saw in all these grieving families in regards to this amnesiac patient, um, to me really kind of bespeaks a larger thing that's happening at, at, at the time, um, uh, where you know you you kind of at least for me my sense of of, of the inner war years is that that people are are really in shock because you know they've just witnessed and survived this this thing that, that there had never been anything like it. you know it would have been impossible uh twenty or thirty years before, and so there's almost this kind of feeling of you know if that could happen, then well well what else what else could happen that you know we wouldn't have believed before and uh, so that that to me was was a really. That that's what makes it interesting to to kind of write about that time, um, and uh, I, I guess to get to the second part of what of what you're saying, the 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 decision to to set it in Italy uh, had uh, a lot to do with uh, once I sort of started digging in and and realized just sort of how fascinating the whole you know not it wasn't just a question of things happening around Verdun this was happening everywhere. Um, I kind of wanted to sort of try to, uh, I guess get a little more panoramic examination of it in. And, uh, I've always, you know, I, I, cho- I chose Italy because I like Italy, you know, I, but, um, just <laughs> good excuse to travel. Yeah, <laughs> it was, I, I was hoping to, you know, drink some Sangiovese and eat some, uh, you know, tagliatelle uh, in Brodo. And so, um, you know, I, that's, it's a no brainer in that, in that sense, but, um, Uh, what I want, you know, I wanted initially, I wanted to kind of write, I don't think the Italian front um, with the huge exception, of course, of a farewell to arms uh, the Italian front hasn't been written about that much in English because uh, there weren't all that many Americans uh, or, or British involved uh, on the Italian front, but it's uh, really fascinating um, and really horrifying. um, And, you know, a, so, I wanted to kind of find some way to kind of tell part of that story in, in the story I was already telling. And so that's, that's kind of part of why I, I initially said it in Italy, but uh, as you brought up, what, what I realized, and, and I picked, you know, some, I was going to, you know, have them go to a city. There's a, this, you know, amnesiac is going to be there. Um, you know, I picked Bologna, I think just because it seemed, um, you know, it's a, old, a famous university town, you know, it just, it seemed like a, you know, a, relatively realistic place that there would be a, um, a, a mental hospital of, of some sophistication. Um, and then I started researching it and only then did I realize that right at the time that I was writing about that Bologna, the Po Valley, Emilia Romana, but particularly Ramonia was this real flashpoint for the conflict between Mussolini's black shirts and, um, pretty much everybody else, you know, communists especially. Um, and, uh, at first I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. Um, and then I thought, well, that's actually perfect, right? Because, um, once I started reading about Italian fascism is, you know, the, about the most, I I had had this, you know, idea about the kind of just this sort of irrational character of, of all the thinking and doing at the time. And then you start reading about Iraq, um, Italian fascism. And it's kind of like, Oh yeah, well that certainly rings the bell for a rational, right. You know I mean? Just uh, in the, in the sense of, uh, you know, Mussolini saying things like, you know, they didn't even have a platform, you know, like a power, power was their platform. Right. Um, and so in some ways, uh, that just felt like a really perfect synergy because, uh, it seemed like it was the kind of political expression of all this sort of emotional stuff that, that I had been writing about. <laughs>
0: So one of the – there's a passage that I want to read because it struck me, again, as encapsulating uh, some real historical truth, again, without footnotes and and so forth, but really capturing something about the nature of politics in that post-war period, especially for young people. Um, and you see this in the fascists in Italy. You see it in the Freikorps movement in, in Germany where they're made up – these paramilitary uh, organizations, they're made up – often the, you know the officers and so forth will be veterans – but there's a real youth component to it of people that um, somehow feel like they've missed out on the war. Oddly, as odd as that might sound. And there's a Mm -hmm. section on page 259 where you said, in retrospect, a good deal of the future became visible that night uh, when there had been this fascist uh, riot, particularly in the faces, orange and sweating beside the fires of boys who had come of age just a few years too late to understand what they were doing. I thought that was just a great, um, powerful passage that really, captured something
1: well yeah well thank you and i mean and I, I think um one thing that really struck me in in thinking about this time and in writing about it and of course you know anyone you know my own writing anyone that reads this book is is going to do it through the lens of knowing what was going to happen in the next several years right um so you can't kind of ignore that uh but it the you know and especially in italy i mean the the you know the as you well know probably way better than i do jay you know that that um that their involvement with with the war was totally cynical you know i mean it was they had, they had really no reason to get involved other than a, than a land grab and uh, uh-huh. this you know some idea of trying to you know kind of unify the country finally as italians or something like that um and they put their people through these extraordinary hardships. Um, and, you know, the, the rate of executions in the Italian army was, you know, multiple times higher than it was anywhere else, for example. And I think in, in certain units, they even uh, resorted to, um, you know, kind of old-fashioned Roman decimation, right, um, for underperforming units and things like that. So, um, so, you know, really terrifying. And then just a few years later, to see all these people kind of dressing, you know, who are just a little bit too young to actually experience it, dressing up in these uniforms and kind of lionizing it and romanticizing it um, is it, just kind of, uh, it tells you something really frustrating about human nature, I think.
0: So let me ask you a little bit about process then too, because uh, knowing now better about how Italy fit into the evolution of the story, um, when did you introduce Paul, who's one of the other main characters, just for the listeners who haven't read it, um, who's an Austrian uh, former soldier? Was that, was that a, a way of getting the Italian front into it to put it – the Austrians fought the bulk of the – or the opponents of the Italians on that front?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, that was part of it. Um, part, you know, there's. The, I think there's always kind of with with decisions like that. I mean, there's always kind of a combination of things that just kind of happen organically and things that happen very intentionally, um, or, or I, organically, or I could say accidentally. I guess would be another word that would work there. Um, so you know, one of one of the the in my process of writing the book, the kind of frame that takes place in uh, your old stomping grounds of of Southern California. Uh I, I wrote most of that last. Uh, but the f- opening scene where he encounters Paul at the funeral was, was one of the early things that I wrote. Um, and so I always kind of knew that there would be this other character that would be there as this kind of tr- you know trigger point for Tom, the narrator, um, and only kind of slowly... Yeah, did I sort of begin to figure out, you know, who he was, what his backstory was, and what he had to do with the rest of the story? And I think you're absolutely right that that part of the decision to have him as an Austrian and be involved in um, in uh, the Italian front was was a, as a way to kind of get some of that um, terrifying description uh, of the Alpine warfare in the Italian front on the page, for sure.
0: And just to be clear, again for for listeners who are more interested in military history, that is one of the one of the strong points of the book too. Is this uh, description of the Italian front about which one doesn't read very often, and and which especially as you as you describe it is really horrifying. These uh, the Italian mining operations to to explode entire Austrian positions or to level mountains. It made me curious to want to go. Um, See these places, see what they look like as well, because I've never I've never been. Did you go to the Asanzo and these other locations?
1: Uh, I went to um, the around uh, Cobarid, which was you know used to be called Caparedo, uh on the Asanzo River. Yeah, um, and uh, spent some time there. I did not really go into the Upper Dolomites, where much of the Alpine warfare in the book takes place. A lot of that is actually pretty. You can get there, but it's pretty inaccessible. Um, so a lot of that that just comes from from reading and imagination. But 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 again, you know, one of those uh, you, know, you just happen to kind of look for these details that that for whatever reason resonate with you as a writer. And that was you know just hearing about all this tunnel and kind of you know, Minecraft warfare uh, that was happening. Tens of thousands of feet in the air, you know, I mean, that all you have all these people that are underground, and yet up in the clouds at the same time, um, just, you know, seems so strange and contradictory to me that I, I, you know, I felt like I had to find some way to, to work that in.
0: And um, Paul has another function, of course, too, which is to um, – well, and you, you can tell me, but to me it seemed like he provides a bit of romantic tension between – or an extra source of romantic tension in the, in the novel. And then he mm-hmm. is also looking for someone. He's looking for an ambulance driver and, and you know, thinks or hopes that this amnesiac will, will be the one uh, who murdered a friend of his.
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, part of the uh, sort of reveal of, of Paul's character late in the book is that he, um, he, he initially represents himself when, when Tom meets him as, as just a journalist who has come to uh, write about the story of this amnesiac. But um, it turns out that he, in fact, has a sort of long standing uh, and just as irrational sort of quest of his own to, um, to, to find someone that is, that has haunted him. Um, and, uh, and that, that, you know, that felt, I mean, cause so much of, of the book is, is about, uh, people searching desperately, you know, uh, for loved ones and, and sort of living their lives in this very provisional and totally irrational way in order, uh, to leave the door open that they might find these loved ones. And I kind of wondered if it, you know, if that could ha- happen for the opposite reasons too, uh, if, if there were, and I don't, you don't hear that story as much, um, probably cause it didn't happen as much. Uh, but, but the, the fact that he might, that there might be this person that had actually done him harm, uh, that he was not able to forget, um, I thought, uh, would be a, be a compelling counterpoint.
0: I'm. I well. I've I've studied the Second World War as well, of course, and there's there are many, lots of cases where that that happens there too. You know, where the, the the occupation soldiers who commit crimes, and then there's a kind of search for for retribution or reckoning after the war. So it's not it's not all that implausible, it seems to me. But um, uh, an, an extra enrichment of the story in this case. Um, another connection I, that I made with the Second World War was the fate of Doctor Bianchi, the the Italian doctor who's treating the amnesiac, um, and sort of the problem of the emigre. He 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 wants to try to escape the fascists, but where where can he go? And that that question of where do you, when things go south in your in your home country, where where can you land safely? Was a I thought that was a uh, not tragic, but a. a, a kind of sad situation that he found himself in.
1: Sure. I mean, uh, you know, and as a, as a, one of the, you know, uh, rules are made to be broken, of course, but one of the the kind of things that, that you often think about as a, as a writer is, is just, you know, uh, every character, every character's desire, you know, everyone is motivated by, by wanting something that they can't get easily. So, um, that, uh, for, for this Dr. Bianchi character who becomes important. He's both treating the amnesiac and then also becomes a sort of friend to, uh, to Tom and Sarah. Um, and uh, is, uh, he has worked very hard to kind of get to a place uh, where he's doing the work that he feels important and he wants to do and feels, feels gratifying as a, as a doctor. And yet here is this political situation, which he can see is kind of, that is sort of like will doom him and his family. Um, and it is difficult and, uh, or maybe even impossible, right. For him. Uh, so the, the question that's placed to him is, you know, do you, do you immigrate to say to America, which means losing all credentials and having to start over again? Um, or do you see out, uh, this horrible thing that's, that's happening all around you. Um, and, uh, you know, th- those are the kind of sort of situations, right. Of, of, of choice. Uh, and just from a narrative standpoint, you want to, you want to try to put your characters in.
0: So let's talk a little bit of, I, I mentioned this to you off, uh, offline, so to speak, that one of the joys for me in reading the book was so many familiar locations in Los Angeles where I, where I grew up. So you must've also done some work uh, both researching the film industry and and locations in Los Angeles and so forth for the the kind of I don't know you probably have a term for it but the you know the the second setting of the book in 1950 in in and around Los Angeles.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I read uh, a great book um, called City and Nets um, by uh, I'm now forgetting the author's name. This is embarrassing, um, but uh, but that's a history of. Uh, of Hollywood in the 1940s, uh, and several other books as well, memoirs and, and things like that. Um, but, uh, that choice, I, I, the, I got the idea to, uh, um, that I wanted part of this to be set in, uh, in southern california uh just from an anecdote that i encountered many many years ago in a book called the rest is noise by uh, alex ross the music critic and um he's he's writing about uh uh who is it i guess Sh- uh, Schoenberg, uh the the viennese modernist composer and he um sort of recounts this sort of famous anecdote where Schoenberg is at like a supermarket in you know la you know uh, probably you know, testing out the softness of a cantaloupe or something like that, and runs into uh, Tomas Mann, who has, um, Schoenberg is sure that the Dr. Faustus character in Mann's novel is based on him and he's furious and, and um, says, you know, I didn't have syphilis, uh, which is you know what the Dr. Faustus character does. Um, I just thought that just the uh, d- sort of, uh, opposition of you know thinking about these two serious central european guys with accents now in this brightly lit uh southern california space full of you know fluorescent lighting and fresh fruit and sunlight uh i mean i just i just love the kind of the yeah as i said the the opposition of those two things and that's what i was really looking for in this book you know you can even just kind of see the you know the way the cover turned out right this dark moody sort of european uh, uh, tableau. And, uh, I wanted the space that, that Tom and, um, and, uh, Paul inhabit, uh, the outside of that to be the opposite of that, you know, to be, uh, to, to be the opposite aesthetically, but, but also, you know, about as far as you know, if they're going to go back to America, that's about as far literally as you can get, you know, from everything else, you know, they're pushed up right against the sea, right? On the
0: notion that it's a place with no past, whereas these characters are struggling so mightily with their past. And um, that's been, always been my, my kind of impression of Los Angeles, right?
1: Everything's brand new. It's not really true, but. Exactly. Um, brand, brand new and, and very self-consciously kind of writing itself at that time into existence, right? Um and then and, and there's even
0: a... Unfettered by any other right, constraints.
1: exactly, exactly. Um, you know, there's even a line in the book where he kind of, you know, quotes um, a famous line from A Farewell to Arms about, you know, the names of places having, you know, being the only ones that have dignity anymore um, after the war. Um and, uh, you know, Tom says, and, you know, one of the things I liked about Los Angeles is that, you know, none of the places had any dignity or history or that none of the names had any dignity or history, you know, they were just these kind of made up brand new things. Um, so that, that seemed, uh, you know, like a kind of a appropriate sort of juxtaposition. Um, and then, you know, also, uh, you know, the fact that it's not just Southern California, but it's Hollywood. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I very much think that, that, uh, all this, you know, what, all of what the characters are doing in the whole book, with the amnesiac in particular, but in other spaces as well, is they're they're kind of telling themselves the story they want to believe. Right? Um, you know, uh, Sarah wants to believe she can find her husband and that she kind of, by some miracle chance, has uh, in this asylum. Uh, Tom wants to believe something very different. Um, and you know, I think especially studio system Hollywood uh, era. You know that's kind of the, the sort of writing the story that you know America wants to believe about itself a little bit uh, at the time, and uh, so that that's no accident that that those two things share sp- share space.
0: So I think we've done a great job of, I hope, um, exciting listeners about the book. Uh, it's certainly worth reading. I'm glad that you brought up uh, Hemingway a couple of times. I wouldn't say – I know it's kind of an insult to an, to an artist to say you sound like or you write like, but um, <laughs> Hemingway was very much in my mind as I was reading this, this book as well. And, and part, of the, part of the pleasure of it for sure was, was uh, the association with, with that that great writer and 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 the subject matter of farewell to arms and so forth was, was uh, uh, part of that for sure, so i think i I'll, I'll wrap up the the discussion of the of the novel right now and maybe give you a chance to talk about what you're reading. I always like to end the, an interview with um, a discussion of what you know what our authors think are are worthwhile books, and you can mention a history book if you like but but feel free if if there's some uh some literature that you're reading now that you want people to to think about?
1: Sure. Well, first let me say, thank you, Jay. Uh, and you mentioned before that, uh, I, uh, do not need a historian's approval, but I, but I, very, I very, very much appreciate it. And, uh, in, um, you know, I, am I'm not, I'm certainly far from a historian myself, though. I was a um, history major in college many you. years ago. Uh, and <laughs> I, I, I added English right at the end. because uh, I, so I felt, I felt myself slipping in that direction, but, um, but, but I, you know, the, I, and I didn't set out here to necessarily write, um, you know, something that, uh, was a hundred percent accurate, you know, in, in all of its historical detail, but, but the fact that, you know, people, uh, who have studied the period and have thought deeply about it as you have, uh, you know, find it to be plausible and, um, and uh, evocative, uh, means a great deal to me. So, uh, so I just, you know, want to say thank you very much for that. Um, yeah. So, uh, let's see. Uh, so I, as far as reading, I have been, um, I'm working on another book, which, uh, is kind of advancing in, in kind of the same mode as this one. Um, But, uh, you know, as one does, after you write a book about world war one, of course you want to write a book about world war two, right? So I've been (laughs) thinking about that and I've been, uh, reading a lot of memoirs. Um, a lot of them have been about Poland in world war two. So I just read, um, Jan Karski's, uh, report from a secret state or something like that. I don't know if you're familiar with that Mm book. Um, Uh, But, you know, Karski was a – worked for the Polish underground and um, just had uh, this kind of amazing uh, and dramatic experience uh, during World War II where he, um, you know, was – captured by the Soviets, uh, sent to Russia, you know, uh, managed to break out of a, uh, Soviet camp, then was captured by the Germans when he got back to Poland, managed to break out of a train on the way to a a German concentration camp, joined the Polish underground and, and he became this courier, uh, amongst other things between the Polish underground in Poland and the government in exile, uh, first in Paris, then later in London. And, um, it was kind of during that as one of his roles there, he was, um, you know, uh, one of the first, uh, Gentiles to, uh, go into the Warsaw ghetto to kind of offer a report to his superiors, about what was happening there. And he also went, uh, um, was kind of dressed up as a guard so that he could go observe, um, I believe it was Belzec, uh, the death camp. So, um, so I just read that book, which was,
0: yeah, I remember now sounding familiar. Now I remember the story and thinking about how you're, you're breaking into the Warsaw ghetto. Hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. It, it, uh, it's, you know, and just, just the anyway, so a real, a real valuable and, uh, um, uh, just, it's just the kind of amazing witness to, um, uh so much uh horror so so uh th- that book really blew me away um and I, so uh, and I'll, you know i 'll say just as far as uh, another book that I read recently, which um I thought was just fantastic this is this is fiction um uh, just just so i don't only talk about history um but uh, there's a German writer named Jenny Erpenbeck who um is still alive, I believe. And she is. Uh, she grew up, uh, I think, in East Germany. Um, you know, through through the communist era. And uh, she had a book, She has a book I read recently, which is called *End of Days*, which uh, imagines this one woman who's born at the beginning of the twentieth century in, um, I guess, uh, somewhere in in Galicia. Um, you know, at the, at the very eastern edge of the Habsburg Empire. And, uh, every six, and it's, it, it's, it's, one of, I, I like talking about it because it's kind of interesting because it has this very gimmicky thing where, uh, or something that could be gimmicky where, uh, the whole idea of the book is that in the first chapter, the, this, the central character who's unnamed, she dies, um, as a, as an infant. Um, but the second chapter is, okay, well, what if she hadn't died as, as an infant? What's, what's her life going to be like after that? And then, you know, in that second chapter, she dies at 14. Um, And then the third chapter is, well, what if she didn't die at 14? You know, what if she, you know, fate passed a different way on that particular day? What's the next, you know, 20 years of her life look like until she dies at 35, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So there's something very kind of, as I said, almost kind of gimmicky about the form of the book. Uh, but it is just so brilliantly written and the way it kind of synthesizes the history of that part of the world as it sort of evolves from Habsburg Europe to post post-World War I Europe to, um, World War II Europe, uh, to, uh, uh Iron Curtain Europe. Um, yeah, I, I just thought was so captivating and brilliant.
0: So is your new book going to be set in Eastern Europe or do you have a, a, a title yet? Uh,
1: when you- uh, well, I- much much to be determined at this point, but um, part, parts of it uh, certainly will. Uh, parts will be set in, in the United States and, and parts will probably be set in France. Uh, so <laughs> how I'm going to pull that all together, I have no idea, but that's the idea right now. <laughs> Somehow the
0: characters should end up in LA, driving through Palos Verdes, uh, looking at horses. No,
1: I'm just kidding, teasing. Yeah, well, maybe... <laughs> <laughs> it could be a bit of a reprise, you know, just sort of a, a a wink, a wink to anyone that that read the first one. Yeah, that's a good idea.
0: Well, thanks, Nick. I really appreciated uh, the chance to read the book. I highly recommend it if you're if you're at all interested in the period, um it's it's a great read. I think uh, there are um, plenty of pleasures and surprises that we did not discuss. so so even if you listen to this whole podcast, there's still a lot to um, to gain from reading the book itself. So thanks again, uh, Nick, and thank you for listening.